Well, it's been a pretty uneventful couple of days, eh? <laughs> Nothing big happened yesterday or anything? No? Uh, <laughs> let's open our Bibles to the book of Joshua. And uh, we're going to go to chapter 6. Rather, I, actually, let's skip back a bit to chapter 5. In verse 13, we've talked about the Israelites um, crossing the Jordan. We've talked about them uh, sending spies and staying at Rahab's house. Now we've come upon the, the part of the story where they arrive at the city of Jericho. They camp just outside the city and they're ready to go. There is a, an awkward bit of scripture where there's a whole mass circumcision. So we're not going to talk about that tonight. Uh, but uh, in verse 13, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? We just got to remember this, that God told the Israelites they would take uh, Canaan. They would take this land. Uh, the first obstacle, the first objective, the first mission is to take Jericho. They've sent spies, but I dare say they have no idea how they're going to take it. God has given them commands, and as he gives them commands, they have an idea. But God... Uh, when they first get to Jericho, like they don't have the blueprint from 40 years ago. All they know is they get to a city and they say, well, we know people are afraid of us. We don't know how to build siege weapons. We don't know how to, do, do we just surround them and they starve? But God gives his people instructions and they're very strange instructions like march around the city a bunch of times. That's not good military strategy. That has no, like do a parade six times for six days, and then on the seventh day, do it extra, do it a bunch of times, and then shout. So they, they're trying to do the best they can to follow God's direction. Joshua is getting direction straight from God, and he's got the guts and the boldness to do it, even though it makes very little sense. And in verse 13, he, he sees this figure that I'm assuming, I don't know what he thinks. I, 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 you have to think on some level he's aware that this is, a supernatural event. But he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Whose side are you on? I don't know if he thought it was just a soldier or if he genuinely saw it was an angelic figure and, and didn't know what does this mean. Are you for us? Are you on our side? Are you on their side? And the answer is not what he'd expect. In verse 14, the answer is this. He said, no. That wasn't the question. Are you for us? Are you for our enemies? No. He says, but rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And there's a lot of arguments about who this figure is. Is it an angel? Is it a pre-incarnate Christ himself? Either way, let me tell you something. Angels carry messages from God, Right? So whether or not this is God himself or an angel of God, it's the same. 
because the angel is carrying a direct word from God. Angels didn't get to ad lib. They carried a message, right? Now, there's, I mean, there's some points that, you know, like Joshua bowed down and worshiped. And a lot of times when it's an angel, the angel says, don't worship me. In this case, he doesn't. So maybe you make a case there. Either way, God wants to speak to Joshua, and the message he has is this, I'm not on either of your, I'm not in either of your armies. I have my own. Because there's the Israelite army, there's the Jericho army, and he says, I've got my own army. I'm not part of either of your teams here. I am captain of the host of the Lord, literally of Yahweh. And he says, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is, a, this is not a great, big, giant, brand new revelation for you, but let me just put it out there anyways. God was on the side of the Israelites. He fought for them. He fought with them. But ultimately, they served his purpose. He didn't just tag along and say, Joshua, what's your best idea? I'll bless it. Instead, he says, here's, here's what I want to do. You guys follow me. You, you, you follow my plan. You walk in my ways. Here's what we're faced with, and, and we saw a great example of it um, throughout this election season with our neighbors to the south, is that constantly people are asking, well, whose side is God on? Who's his candidate? Who's he picked? Now, I believe God has favorites because it's pretty, it's pretty hard for uh, it to be a 50-50 split that, that both are just, just as good. I think, I think God's got a purpose and a plan, and I think he uses who he wants to use, and all of that is good. But let's not confuse that with God wearing a party hat or belonging to a group. Isn't that right? So many times we just want God to come over to our side. God, be on my team. And he's not, he's not asking to be on our team. He's saying, will you be on my team? Because his army outranks our army. We get into trouble when we try to put T-shirts on God and pins on him and say, you know, you belong to this, you belong to that. Instead, we say, we belong to you. Now, the amazing thing is that we serve a God who does not keep himself distant, and he says, I am for you. He says, I am with you. He actually uses phrases and terms like father. Now, you realize once you give a family term and you say, you can call me father, that's ownership. He's giving you a piece of himself. Do you know that? He's saying, you can call me by this. This is who, you can know me. You can consider yourself mine and I'm yours. That's an amazing thought. And yet, as believers, we struggle sometimes to, to say, God, you know, whose team are you on? Can you be on ours? Can you bless this? Can you bless that? And what Joshua came face to face with was a God who said, I'm not playing for your team. You got to be on mine. I am, I, I, whose side are you on? Are you with us? Are you with them? Neither. But I'm the captain of the army of the Lord. So when Joshua came to the knowledge and he did the right thing, he bowed down. He came into contact with something higher than himself. I love this because we serve a God who's called us friend. We serve a God who's called us family members. And yet we can't forget this. We can't forget this. He will always be king of kings and lord of lords. There is an intimacy there that he wants. And yet there is also a reverence there that all, that's always got to be present. I love that the scripture says 
I, I'm looking for people who will tremble at my voice. And yet at the same time, he says, I'm looking for those that will delight at my word. So we've talked about this before, but that, that leaves a tension for us. You know, am I supposed to tremble when I hear the voice of God or am I supposed to jump up and down and be happy when I hear the voice of God? And I say both, both. Now think about it. If I were to transport you right now, if God were to transport you right now into the very physical throne of God and you stood in his presence and you were right there in the presence of the living God, we are, but imagine you could see it and you could feel it and you, you knew you were in the throne of God. Would you be happy? Yes. Would you be reverent? Yes. Would there be trembling? Probably, because you're in the presence of something so great. Would there be a little giggling? Yes, probably. All of this is good. I mean, I, I've told you this before, but I experienced this when my son was born. I, I, was, I was nervous. I, I mean, I was, I was in awe. I was laughing. I was, I was just speechless. I mean, this is a, a huge moment. That's nothing compared to the same thought that Joshua might have felt in the presence of God or John might have felt being lifted up and seeing the, the risen, glorified Christ in all of his splendor. John fell on his face like a dead man. So did Ezekiel. And yet they felt joy in his presence, delight in his presence. And what we can't lose is the fact that while, yes, you may have the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. They don't really make those anymore. They did for a while. That was the thing, right? <laughs> he is also the king that we bow before. Moses had a conversation with God earlier. And I, I find it just a wonderful conversation because Moses says to God, he says, you knew me and you knew us. He says, you've known us this whole time and you've chosen to walk with us and you chose to be with us. But he says, God, let me know you. He said, you say you know us and I rejoice in it that you know us. But I want to know you. He says, show me your ways that I would know you. God says, okay. You found favor with me. I'll show you my ways. You'll know me. And Moses gets a taste and he just wants more. So he says this, okay, God, show me your glory. God says, I'll let my goodness pass before you. You'll see it. Moses says, okay, because he says, God, here's the deal. If your presence, you said you're going to give us your presence. If it doesn't go with us, we're not going anywhere. I want you to see what Moses began to desire was God, show me your ways. That literally means your roads, your paths, the way you walk. Moses didn't say, God, we've got a plan. We're really praying that you bless our plan. Moses says, show us how you walk. Show us your roads. We want to get on your road. We want to get on your path. We want to learn to walk with you. We want to walk beside you. Now, you might say, well, that's just semantics. God walks with us. We walk with him. It's the same in the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we remember there's a shepherd and there's sheep. He's the good shepherd. He leads his sheep with his voice. He leads them out and he leads them in. Psalm 23 says he leads them to still waters and quiet pastures. He restores our soul. It doesn't say that the shepherd is just a bodyguard for the sheep and the sheep go, I think today we're going to go over here. And the shepherd says, well, I'm chained to you. Let's go. Instead, 
the sheep follow his voice. What happens? In the book of Isaiah, it says, all we like sheep had gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Thank God for that. Amen. Let's just take a moment and thank God that the iniquity of us all fell on Jesus. Where did the iniquity come from? Us going our own way. The sheep going their own way was what Jesus had to pay for. Right? And it doesn't, it's not a coincidence that a couple verses down, he says he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb before the slaughter. He died the death of a rebellious sheep because that was our death that he died. So maybe now that we're saved, we come to the realization our own way is not a good way. Let's go his way. We're saved. We've been redeemed. We've been rescued from going our own way. Now we learn where his way is. What Joshua came face to face with was that he was not coming to God and God saying, Joshua, what's your plan? Whatever it is, I'll, I'll help you out with it. Instead, Joshua was coming face to face with the king of kings and coming face to face with the army of God. And God says, so here's the plan, Josh, get on board. Because whether or not you want me to be on your team or you don't want me to be on theirs, I got my own team. You need to be on mine. Abraham Lincoln famously said it. He said, I mean, you think about the American Civil War. There was revival in both armies. I know that's weird for us to think now because we, we think in such black and white terms. We think there were good guys. We, for every war, we think there's got to be a good guy and a bad guy, right? It was easy with World War II, right? Hitler is an obvious bad guy. That's real easy. So that's why it's the feel-good war of the century. We can feel good about it. You know, oh, yeah, there's a bad guy and there's good guys. What about Finland? Finland fought on the side of the Axis powers because Russia was invading their land. Well, it gets murky, doesn't it? But you think back to the Civil War. You know, one of the greatest writers on prayer, and I don't say this just because he's a distant relative, but E.M. Bounds, to this day, is one of the most famous writers on, on prayer. Do you know E.M. Bounds was a chaplain for the Confederate Army? Now, sometimes in our simplified history, we'll think, well, the Confederate Army, weren't they for slavery? Some of them were, but most of them just said, you know, we want our states to have rights. We, want, we don't want the North coming in and telling us what we have to do. Now, you can argue the morality of that, but the point is God was in both. There were believers in both. So there's very likely that at some point you picked up a gun and you fired at a brother in Christ. Well, whose team is God on? I, I don't mean to offend my southern mom here. I think it's good that it ended the way it did, right? Is that okay? She says it's okay. I think it's good it ended the way it did. It put a, an abrupt end to an evil uh, practice. So thank God. We're glad America is one today, right? Yeah. Amen. I'm glad about that. Nevertheless, God was moving in both camps. Some of, these, some of these soldiers would come, and in between battles, they'd come to the battle line, and they'd trade. They'd trade coffee. They'd trade different things. Some of them would even pray together. Can you imagine praying with somebody, knowing that they're a brother in Christ? The next day, aiming your gun at them. So Abraham Lincoln's giving a speech. 
People are getting uppity because they're saying, well, we're obviously on God's side. And Abraham Lincoln says, says, I'm not so sure. He says, we all want to be, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically says, you know, we all want to be on God's side. But I think it's more appropriate that we get on God, we all got, want God to be on our side is what he said. But he says, I think we need to be on God's side for God is always right. Everybody's saying, God bless our efforts. God bless our battle. And, and he, he clicked on something there, which is God's not picking teams here. It's time for us to get on his side. And that's awkward because people, uh, you want to dr- live in a black and white world, right? Where there's always good guys and bad guys. And Jesus really made it difficult to think that way, didn't he? So he began to say, you've got to bless your enemies. You've got to pray for those that persecute you. You've got to love them. He was constantly put in a position where people were trying to get him to fight for their side. Do you remember the moment that the Pharisees and the Herodians came at the same time to trap Jesus? The Pharisees were the religious elite. They, they, uh, they held the high ground religiously. The Herodians were the opposite. They were, they were the Roman sympathizers. They were the ones that, uh, you know, wanted this, this rule and wanted this earthly power. Both of them wanted power. They just wanted it in a different way. Knowing that half the people, probably more than half, think that it's a shame that we have to pay taxes to these dirty, stinking Romans. And knowing that at the same time, if Jesus starts talking anti-Roman, well, the Romans are going to come and shut him up. So they try to trap him, and they hold up a coin, and he's got people on both sides, and they say, so is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And they're expecting Jesus. They want Jesus to pick a side. Pick a side, Jesus. Tell us whose side you're on. Now, look look who Jesus is hanging out with. One of, his, one of his disciples was a tax collector, a Roman sympathizer, a, a collaborator, a dirty, stinking rat, right? He's working for... Another one of them is Simon the Zealot, a rebel, one of the guys that wants to violently overthrow the Romans. Can you imagine the fireside chats these guys had? <laughs> right? You think that these elections that we've been seeing lately have been hostile. You can't imagine. Jesus had it in his own little tight group. So they, they say, pick a side, Jesus. Pick a side. And Jesus says, whose face is on the coin? Well, Caesar's. Give Caesar what's Caesar's. Give God what's God's. And they were amazed, probably a little ticked off, because they couldn't corner him into picking a team here. Jesus had one team, one goal, one mission, that was to do the will of the one who sent him. He said this in John chapter 5. In fact, let's turn there and just look at it real quick. In John 5, Jesus says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. This is the radical thought, isn't it? Jesus could do nothing on his own initiative. What do you think that literally, like, I can do nothing? Did Jesus have the capability to disobey God? Yes. But to him, it wasn't an option, right? So he said, I can't. Not not because he wasn't physically capable of it, but because it wasn't even an option for him. 
I can do nothing. I will do nothing. I can do nothing supernatural. I can do nothing good. There's nothing I'm going to do on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Now, it's one thing to hear from God, isn't it? It's a great thing to hear from God. It's a great thing to hear from God when he speaks to your spirit. It's a great thing to open his word and have him speak through his word. But he says, as I hear, hearing is just the first step. We know that because the Bible is the word of God, and yet Satan knows how to use it. But when he uses it, there's no life in it, right? People twist the, the scripture all the time. We were talking about the Civil War. People use scripture to try to back up their claim that they should have slaves. Everybody in the room, there's not a person in the room who thinks it was God's will for them to have slaves, is there? Raise your hand awkwardly. No, okay, no. That was just going to be a weird moment if somebody raised their hand. We'd have to have a conversation. But yet they use Scripture. So, so hearing is one thing. I love the example that, I, you know, I think of the example in Acts when, when uh, the, I've used this plenty of times, so please forgive me for repeating myself, but when Agabus says, you know, uh, this is what's going to happen if you go to, over here. They're going to chain you up. They're going to, you know, bind your hands and feet. And it says that the, the group of Christians, because of what the Spirit said, because of impressions made by the Spirit, they said, Paul, you're not supposed to go. God said you're not supposed to go. Paul heard the exact same word and said, that's confirming that I'm, a, I'm supposed to go. They both heard the exact same word from God and got the total opposite thing from it. So hearing is good. But when you hear from God, you've got to judge, right? Now, here's the deal. The easiest thing in the world is to hear what God says and make it fit your narrative. Make it fit what you already want to do. I mean, come on, guys. You know that somebody could get a word from the Lord at the next set of meetings, get a powerful prophetic word, and if they are determined to move to, say, Vancouver... They're determined to move to Vancouver. Everybody's saying, I think that's a bad idea. No, I'm going to move to Vancouver. God could say to them, what you're planning is stupid. Don't do it. And they could find a way to say, see, he wants me to go to Vancouver. <laughs> Wait, didn't he say what you're planning is stupid? Yeah, because for a minute there I was planning to stay. See? <laughs> we, because hearing is important, but judging is just as important. So how did Jesus judge the word? He says, you know that you can trust what I judge. You can trust my judgment because I don't seek my own will, but I seek the will of the one who sent me. This is how your compass gets aligned. When you're not seeking your will, you're seeking his will, you can clearly hear from God. Another way I look at it is, you know, when I don't know whether that's my own desire, that's God's desire, Hebrews says the word of God is, a sharp, is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. So when I'm trying to figure out if it's my soul or if it's my spirit, the word divides it for me. The scripture will help me with that. But the other thing is, when I go and I genuinely want to know what God's will is, it is always tempting to say, here's my will, God Give me a word to back it up, right? It's easy, it's easy to preach that way. You know, it's very easy to preach and have an idea and find a scripture that you think backs your idea and find enough and cherry pick them enough that you can start with a point and get enough scripture to back up your point. But that's you telling scripture instead of scripture telling you what you believe, right? 
So the best thing you could do, and someone said it much better than me, so I'm just going to quote them. They said, only the unbiased can truly know the will of God. Now here's the fun part. We're all biased. But we can become unbiased. We can empty ourselves of our biases. We've all got teams we play for. We've all got teams we want God to play for. Here's the good thing. We can all lay those things down at the feet of Jesus and say, I want your will for my life. I want your way. I want your path. It's very tempting because I've been there to say, here's what I want. Here's what we're doing. God, would you just bless what we're doing? And so often, God does bless what you're doing. But here's the thing. He wants you to get into what he's doing. That's where the blessing lives. That's where his grace is. That's where the provision is, is on his path. So Moses says, teach me your paths so I can walk with you and know you. He doesn't say, hey, God, you need to learn mine. He says, I want to know yours. David said something similar. He says, guide me. He says, teach me your paths. Teach me your roads. Teach me your ways, O God, so that I can walk with you and I can know you and lead me and guide me into paths of righteousness. He's asking God to show him the paths that God's taking because that's the path I want to be on. There's a great story. In fact, let's read it in 1 Samuel. First Samuel, and right at the right at the beginning of the story, you guys know that Samuel was a young boy, and he grew up, spent his formative years as a as a preschooler in the temple, and then God gave him a prophetic word that really was hard to deliver. Can you imagine being a young boy, and God gives you your very first word from heaven, and He tells you to deliver it? And it's a rebuke. And it's not just a general rebuke. It's rebuking the very guy that's raising you and his whole family and the whole nation. That's not easy. But he does it. Unfortunately, his words aren't immediately heeded because Eli's sons, and you guys may know this story, but Eli was the high priest and his sons were extremely wicked. Just terribly wicked guys. They would... They'd take advantage of women who'd come to bring offerings. They'd take the offerings that were meant for God and take them for themselves. They were, they were corrupt and perverse in every way. And so God was saying, you know, Eli, you need to get your house in order. This isn't going to stand. You're not representing my house. You're not representing the priesthood. And Eli couldn't get control of his own sons. And in this... Time of battle comes, and, and Eli's sons decide it's time to go fight the Philistines. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, in verse 1, he says this, he says, Thus the word of the Lord came to all Israel. The word of Samuel, sorry, came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle, and they camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. Ebenezer was that place where God gave them a great victory. Ebenezer means the Lord helps. So Ebenezer was the place 
where God gave them through Samuel such a powerful, amazing victory. And that's where they camp. And they figure, if we camp here, this is where we're going to get the blessing of God. And um, the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. That's an amazing amount of people for that, for ancient warfare. That's a crazy amount of people. 4,000 of them died. So when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Let's just pick apart the issues here. Number one, the issue is they think God, I mean, obviously God switched sides. Well, why did God, why did God fight against us here? Why didn't we win? In, instead of really asking that question and coming up with the response of maybe we were doing the wrong thing, instead they go, oh, we didn't bring the magic trinket with, we didn't bring the ark with us. Not maybe we shouldn't have gone to battle, but instead we didn't bring the ark. Well, silly us. Now watch, when they say, let's bring the ark with us, they don't say God will deliver us. It will deliver us. It'll go with us. It'll bring us power. It will deliver us. They're using God as, as little more than, a, than an idol, a trinket, a spell. They figure they can force God's hand. If we bring the ark, God has to fight for us, right? God, this is our plan. You have to back us up. Rather than saying, Lord, what is your plan? This is our plan. You back it up. We're going to bring the ark. We're going to bring it with us, and it'll deliver us. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there, they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us who should deliver us from the hands of these mighty gods. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you'll become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent and the slaughter was very great for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers and the ark of God was taken and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. So the result of them thinking, let's do our thing and manipulate God and joining backfired in their face. Now lest the Israelites think there's no power in this ark, once they brought it back to Philistine, they brought it back to their own land. This ark caused all sorts of trouble. They put it next to their God, like, hey, look, Dagon, we brought you a trophy. Look what we won. We won their, most, we won their God, their most valuable thing. Let's put it in front. The next morning, they wake up. Dagon's flat on his face, and his arms, his hands, and his feet are broken. And they go, oops, something's wrong here. 
eventually they move it to another person's house and this guy, this family keeps it at their house and they all break out in boils. This whole community breaks out in boils. So they just, eventually the Philistines say, let's just get rid of this thing. Let's put it on some ox and shoot it back to Israel. God showed them that uh, just because you, you were defeated the Israelites there, just because you saw some victory doesn't mean there's no power. It just doesn't mean that I'm, I'm impotent, that I'm, I'm not here. But look at the danger of the stupidity of saying, God, here's our plan. Come join our plan rather than saying, God, what's your plan? Well, let me qualify this with a, state, with a couple statements. Number one, there were people that came to know God, that God did treat differently. He treated like friends. Abraham talked to God as a friend. Abraham even negotiated with God. God came to Abraham before he did anything. God was going to make a major move, and he came to Abraham first. Moses was able to come to God in that sense. Joshua was the same way. Joshua said, God, stop Stop this sun in the sky. Leave it in the same space so we can finish this battle. But why did Joshua say that? Why did Joshua say that? So it would be a cool story? No, he said that because he was going to fulfill. God said, finish the battle. Get it done. So Joshua knew it's God's will for us to finish the battle. And if I know I'm walking in God's will, I can ask for crazy things because I'm in the plan of God. I'm in the will of God. So God stopped the sun in the sky, and God says, sure. And the Bible says such a thing has never happened since or before. Joshua didn't just say, hey, guys, let's see a cool trick. I bet if I ask God, he'll stop the sun in the sky. Joshua was fulfilling what God had already told him. But before I stray too far off the point, we are believers who get to carry the name of Jesus. What a powerful name. And I've said this before, but let me just reinforce the point. The name of Jesus is not a spell. It's not an abracadabra. It's not, Lord, I'm playing soccer against Jared's team next week. So in the name of Jesus, break his legs. In Jesus' name, amen. Is God going to do that? No. Why? Because I used the name of Jesus, I said the name of Jesus, but I did not pray in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus means on his behalf, as if it were him. That's why it has such power. He says, if you pray in my name, he doesn't say if you tag it at the end of your prayer, it becomes a magic prayer. He says, if you pray in my name. Peter and John say, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And when they're questioned about it, they say, it was by the name of Jesus this man is healed, right? And yet Paul comes across a cripple, and he says, stand up. He doesn't say in the name of Jesus. He just tells him to stand up. The man stands up. Now I ask you, was Paul saying it in the name of Jesus? Absolutely, he was. Just because he didn't use it doesn't mean he wasn't speaking in the name of Jesus. He had the authority to do that because Jesus told his disciples, this is what you'll do. Paul knew he was stepping into the mission of Jesus. And when you step into the mission of Jesus, you're walking in the name of Jesus. And we abuse that name when we pray our prayers out of our own will and then tag it at the end as if that somehow makes it an abracadabra, do my will. Here's the beautiful thing. 
We have an example. We have a forerunner. We have a leader, and it's Jesus. And he's called us to walk in his steps. And here is what the man himself said, I do nothing of my own initiative. You know what he's saying? I don't come up with my own game plan. I don't decide to do something and tell the Father to back me up. He says, I do what the Father shows me. I do what he tells me to do. I say what he tells me to say. Now, if Jesus led that way, if he lived that way, don't you think we live that way? That's how we're meant to live. God, I'm not looking for you to join my team. I want to join yours. And people will try to force you into it. I think while we're on the topic of election, I think every election you should make a decision. Right? It's the easiest thing in the world to say they're all crooks. They're all scumbags. Maybe they are. But you got a little bit of authority. You're a little tiny king, right? Your vote is your authority. Every king is held accountable to how they use their, their authority. We're held to account for the little bit of authority we have. We have authority in our vote. We have authority of our, in our letters that we write and in the th- petitions we sign. That's our authority. Now, it's tiny compared to the authority we have in prayer, Right? but it's still authority. You're expected to use it. Here's what we do. Ask the Lord. Talk to God. I'm sure he's got a plan. Let's get on board with his plan. But just because you voted this way and God told you to vote this way and this candidate was probably the closest to, to, to a worldview that you believe backs the worldview that we believe, that doesn't mean that God automatically becomes the biggest fan. Right? It, it doesn't mean that you've got to buy all the merchandise and say, I belong to this now because we haven't stopped belonging to a different kingdom. And just like Jesus, people are going to try to force you onto a team, force you onto a side. And there are times when you need to take sides. But you don't belong to that side. You belong to Jesus. We are citizens of heaven before we're Canadians, right? We're citizens of heaven. I believe God put us in Canada for such a time as this. We are missionaries to this nation. We are ambassadors to this nation. I, I, I take that proudly. I'm so glad that God put me here. But that's a duty. That's a responsibility. But I don't stand here as a Canadian petitioning the kingdom of God. I stand here as a citizen of heaven, sent and assigned to this nation. So I don't get owned. And you don't get owned. I, don't know, I know there's a time to stand up and say we support this and we support that and speak up for righteousness and speak up for people who speak up for righteousness and don't be ashamed of that. And yet at the same time, don't be owned by that because our God doesn't wear a party shirt or a party hat. And if we were to ask him, whose side are you on? Neither. Because I serve a higher kingdom. I have my plan, I have my will, and I'm convinced in every election there's somebody God wants you to vote for. Even if they're the last person you want to vote for, God wants you to vote for them. Obey God. That doesn't automatically make them a saint. That doesn't make this person, man or woman, cultural, whatever, that doesn't make them automatically a wonderful person. It just means you got to obey the Lord. Don't be swayed. Don't be drunk on power. Say, yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
And if we were to come face to face with God at the voting booth, and we say, God, whose side are you on? It's very likely he'd say, no. I didn't ask you that. Are you conservative or liberal? No. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? No. Are you a Baptist or a Pentecostal? No. Okay. Well, all right. Well, whose side are you on? And he's saying, that's not the question. Whose side are you on? Let's be on the Lord's side. Let's, let's keep our allegiance where it matters. Let's seek his will and say, I've laid my will down. I've laid my agenda down because only the unbiased can truly know the will of God. Come to God knowing that you have a bias. Then lay it down. Say, Lord, what is your will? I don't seek my own initiative. I seek yours. If Joshua hadn't done that, do you know what he might have done? God, here's our plan. We're going to storm the gates. We're going to have guys checking spears. We're going to try to get some protection because they're, they're, they're shooting arrows down at us. They're throwing boiling oil at us. So we're going to try to, to, you know, take some of those rafts that we were going to build before and put them over our heads and maybe we'll stop some of that. God, it'd be wonderful if you could just, you know, give us some extra strength and, and confuse them while they're doing what they're doing. But that's not what happened. Joshua said, God, what is your plan? And God said, it's a crazy plan. That's okay. Here's my plan. Walk around the city a bunch of times and then yell. Any of you here would have come up with that battle plan? <laughs> it's not sound military strategy. They don't teach that at West Point. <laughs> Who's on the Lord's side, amen? Stand up with me. Let's pray.